Hello, and welcome to the VPL Podcast. My name is Josh, and today we pulled an episode from one of our most recent author events. Elizabeth Petakowski grew up a young Jewish girl in Germany amidst the rise of Nazism and mandatory anti-Semitism. She witnessed Hitler coming to power in the 1930s as a schoolgirl in Germany and experienced the outbreak of World War II in September 1939 from England, where she and her immediate family had fled. Elizabeth resumed her studies and attended university in England during World War II years before immigrating to America. During this event, Elizabeth shared photographs from her life's journey, talked about her experience living through these historical events, reflected on the effects these universally known events had on her life, and read from her memoir, Where From and Where To, one of the last self-told German-Jewish life stories. Robin Judd, associate professor in the OSU Department of History with expertise in Jewish history and immigration history, facilitated the conversation. And with that, I'll hand it over to Zach for his introduction. Hello, everybody. Thank you all for coming out. My name is Zach Parrish. I'm the programming librarian here at the Bexley Public Library. And uh, we have a wonderful event tonight. So again, thank you for coming out to the library. For those online, thank you for uh, joining online. We also have a distinguished moderator tonight. We have Robin Judd, who is an associate professor at the uh, of history at the Ohio State University. She is a specialist in Jewish transnational and gender history with particular interests in Holocaust studies, the history of anti-Semitism, the history of religion, the history of leadership, and the history of migration. She is the author of Contested Rituals, Circumcision, Kosher Butchering, and German Jewish Political Life in Germany from 1843 to 1933. And she is also the author of the forthcoming book, Love, Liberation, and Loss, Jewish Military Marriages and Community Building After the Holocaust, uh, which is forthcoming from the University of North Carolina Press. In recognition of her work in Holocaust studies, Governor DeWine appointed her to Ohio's Holocaust and Genocide Memorial and Education Commission in 2021. Uh, So I will turn it over to Robin and we will uh, kick it off tonight. It is um, infrequent that one has the pleasure of introducing a speaker that one has actually only discovered that one has known longer than one assumed when reading her memoir. Um, And that is uh, that I thought I had met Dr. Petakowski when I first met her son, Jonathan, and said to Jonathan at the time, Petakowski, like, that's quite a name. Uh, Are you related to Rabbi Jacob Petakowski? And he said that he was his father. And I cite his father all over the place in my first book and then met uh, uh, Elizabeth, Dr. Petakowski, the other Dr. Petakowski. And that was the relationship. And then I read the memoir. And in the memoir, discovered that not only is Dr. Petakowski the author of two books, but also has translated a number of the formative books in the field of German Jewish history, including sort of the seminal book on German Jewish orthodoxy written by Mordechai Breuer, which is translated so deftly um, that even when I was sitting in that graduate seminar in 1994, we had a whole conversation around the issue of translation. And it is sort of embarrassing to admit as a scholar that at the time, I didn't even think to retain who it was that had translated. Um, And if you've read her memoir, you see that lyricism um, throughout. 
So Dr. Petakowski, born in Germany, then um, brought spent time in the UK, and hopefully she will kind of talk about her multiple migrations. And then in the US, where she received her PhD and had an illustrious career before gracing us with her presence in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, today's format will be that Dr. Petakowski will speak uh, for 30 to 40 minutes or so uninterrupted. Uh, and then when she's done, we'll sit in these chairs. I'll ask the first question or so, but there's so many of you. So I will only ask one question and then we'll kind of open up the floor to questions from you in this audience and you in that audience on the computer. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Petkowski. Thank you for your kind introduction. I have a lot of thanks to express. First of all, to our delightful library, in particular to our wonderful helper, Zach. And I want to thank all of you for coming. I see a lot of familiar and unfamiliar faces. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I will now start off to introduce my book, which is the purpose of the evening. And I will give you, first of all, a very brief synopsis of what it's about. And then I will read some samples so that, so that you know not only what the book is, but what the book is like. And it is not so much an autobiography as a verbal illustration. Events over the past century you are all familiar with, and I just happened to live at that time. And I tell, and I will tell you what I saw, and I will illustrate it how it affected people, including me. And I experienced Hitler's rise to power when I was going to school in Germany. For World War II, I was in England. And I experienced it as a girl going to high school and to university. And I was evacuated to a country town so as to be away from the bombs of London. And then I came to America. And the first thing that comes to my mind is culture shock. So I, I will tell you a little bit about that. And I was married to Rabbi Jacob J. Petrukowski, who studied at the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. And I worked at that time at the American Israelite, which prides itself on being the first English Jewish newspaper founded by Isaac Mayer Wise. Now, now at that time, of course, it was just one of the local papers, but it was a lot of fun. And I, there are some profiles of the faculty of the Hebrew Union College, all very colorful people whom I describe, not always very seriously. And there are a large number of people I met, some famous, some less famous, but all utterly remarkable. Then we made a few trips abroad including spending a year in Israel, and we went back to Germany a number of times. So that is in chapter eight. And that is what the book is about. It's largely chronological. 
Now I will give you some samples of what the book is like. Um, maybe see picture number one, please. Yeah, that, that is it. That is the tombstone in Bochum, Germany, my native city, uh, of my grandmother and my grandfather. And it is, it is, I'm showing it now because Rosa Plaut and Elsa Ostermann in memory. Um, I, to me, the, they were both killed in concentration camps. And to me, the elephant in the last century is the destruction of European Jewry. Whatever else happened to anybody else, this is what this is all about. And to him to have come out of that alive and relatively sane is, is a remarkable thing. And that is how I see my life. Um, now, I was most fortunate during most of my life. And when Hitler came to power, I was going to school. And I will read you a short passage of how that affected us, how Hitler's coming to power affected us. At the I'm reading on page 58, any of you who have happened to have the book in front of you, <laughs> you can follow. I also want to suggest that as I read, and you have questions, you may want to note them down because by the time I'm at the end, you may have forgotten what you were going to say. <laughs> so, um, at the municipal high school for girls, which I attended between 1934 and 38, I admired the teachers who dodged giving the Hitler salute upon entering our classroom. To an American readership, I need to set the scene for something that was taken for granted in a German school, certainly at that time. Unlike the practice in American high schools, where going up the down staircase between classes is a no-no, pupils in German high schools stayed in their classrooms, except for art, gym, lab, and music. Instead, teachers made the rounds of the classroom, where upon entering, they were required to give the Hitler salute. Some of my teachers managed to avoid this. Fräulein Dr. Meschede, for instance, our French teacher, saw to it that her arms were always laden with papers she had corrected. Her right arm was not available for the salute. She stepped vigorously through the door and plunged in media's race with, Bonjour, mademoiselle. Our mathematics teacher, Studienrat Dr. Aldekamp, sauntered in, ostensibly absorbed by a problem he was going to give us to solve that day. This required salute had become routine after Germany had been taken over by a dictator 
who used intimidation and force to compel the masses to his view. That Hitler's salute in the high school was, in the scheme of things, negligible. It came with coerced collective thinking in the press and in the arts, a dangerous development. In this way, I learned not only subjects of the curriculum, but I also got a whiff of that aura where coerced collective thinking led to unthinking. Outside the school, propaganda was overt. The above-mentioned party newspapers on every street corner, the ubiquitous pictures of the Führer, did anyone tear down or daub Nazi posters? Attempting to do that would have put one's life at risk. In the school, compliance with propaganda was more subtle. Collective thinking has ever since then aroused my deepest suspicions. Um, now I will digress and tell you a few, tell you some of my thoughts. It's called digression, assimilation, anyone? Question mark. It's on page 71. Odious as they are, comparisons will obtrude. I find it interesting that in America, Jewish Americanization is a virtue, while Jewish assimilation in Germany has been decried. Jewish responses and adjustments to the surrounding cultures can be detected in both settings. Jews in Germany and Jews in America have this in common. The age of Jewish settlement in Germany and the re relative youth of Jewish settlement in America make an important difference. With my generation, the matured Judaism of Germany has come to an end. On the present American scene, a variety of Judaisms coexist, and as I see it, they do so analogously to the diverse populations among whom they thrive. American Jew Jewish creedal gradations from total orthodoxy to agnosticism exist freely. The first does Jewish adjustment to America not resemble German assimilation in that it takes account of external cultural conditions? Multiculturalism and religious plurality in America are reflected in the makeup of American Judaisms. A great deal can be said on that subject. Maybe see image number two. This is a sample of my grand, my maternal grandmother's handwriting when she was about 84. She is congratulating my husband and me on the birth of our first son. Um, she lived in England and we were already in America. And I think what is so remarkable about it, first of all, how 
how perfectly this looks. There is nothing hesitant about her writing. It's a very cheerful, loving, affectionate letter. But I think the very image says a lot. Um, now, she lived in what was at the time a, um, a village. It is now a small town. It has grown quite a bit in the southwest of Germany, in Hessen-Nassau. The play, place was called Kamberg. It was later called Bad Kamberg because one can take the cure there. It's a very famous place. All Jews in Kamberg lived much the same lives. Yet these modes of Jewishness, which I described, were multiplied a hundredfold in innumerable small townships throughout Germany. From the distance of years, I yield to our widespread need to categorize. I suggest that grand, my grandmother was a representative of a Judaism unlikely to be amenable to the kind of historical assessment which focuses so, solely on the sociological aspect of the phenomenon Jews dwelling among Germans. Sociological studies convey an incomplete picture if, with ethnicity as a benchmark, they ignore the religious underpinnings of Jews in Germany. Many Jews in Germany sought to escape from discrimination, which barred them from careers in government and academia, and they converted to Christianity. Such studies typically conclude by rubber stamping assimilation as a negative value. But conversions do not alter the contemporaneous presence of a religiously aware German jury. I hold the view that the step from ethnic Jewish secularism to an abandonment of Judaism is short and can be taken almost imperceptibly. Stepping away from ethnic Jewish, Jewishness is relatively painless. A basis of religious Jewish belief is less easily given up. Even two generations earlier, Heinrich Heine felt his Protestant baptism was an admission ticket to European civilization, as he put it. He paid for it with lifelong heartache, which he tried to ease by maintaining he was only baptized, not converted. My grandmother's Jewish orthodoxy was what I like to call non-blinkered. No blinders prevented her from looking right or left, a posture favored by certain orthodox groups. Nor did she adhere to any particular religious orientation. My grandmother, and many like her, occupied the broad dividing line between what Leo Bey called piety of the environment and piety of the individual. All Jews in Kamberg attended the same synagogue, even as their home observance may not have been uniformly orthodox. 
They bought meat from the one local kosher butcher and together observed the feasts and fasts of the Jewish calendar. Their homes adjoined the homes of their Christian neighbors. Jewish and Christian children sat next to one another at the local school. Um, if you uh, can take a look at the book um, eventually, there's a picture of my mother and another girl, and that is an enlargement of a school picture of all the, Jew of all the children in that school, including Jewish children. This way of leading a Jewish life is not easily left behind, like op optional ornamentation retrieved and polished for a holiday. It is the ground from which all else grows. Now, for the next sample reading, it, the war, World War II has broken out. Uh, our family is in England. I was evacuated with a London school to a town in the country to be away from the bombing of, the, of London. And the place we were evacuated to was Kettering in Northamptonshire. Kettering in the Midlands was said to be that town in England that lay furthest from the sea and was therefore considered safer than cities on or nearer the coast. Today, I, happened, I, I looked up how far away it is. It's 92 miles from the ocean. <laughs> so you get an idea how small that island really is. Um, even, even in Kettering, so far away from the sea, uh, it, um, we were vigilant. Shortly before the war's first Christmas, the whole school attended a pantomime in Kettering. Pantomime? It was not, as I had expected, a mimed play without words. Instead, a pantomime, as understood in England, was a theatrical version of a classical children's story performed at Christmas time with audience participation encouraged. The curtain had just opened, the music had started, and everyone was singing when air raid sirens sounded louder than the voices from the stage in the audience combined. The performance stopped because singers, instrumentalists, conductor, and audience filed to the shelter until the all clear was heard. The pantomime did not resume. I wonder who was more disappointed, the school children in the audience or the performers? Yes, we were at war. Um, at this reading, we are in England. Uh, no, we are already in America. Um, and I'm writing about shocks of the new. It's on page 303. Much that was new to us during the first few weeks struck us as American. A huge change from the Europe we had known. Even today, I'm often conscious that I live in the United States. 
My first shock in Cincinnati, not abated now, was the sight of a policeman with a handgun on a peaceful downtown street. He can kill someone with that, I thought. I was used to London bobbies armed with rubber truncheons, threatening enough, but not lethal, although that has changed in some English cities. I wondered what lurking danger necessitated the carrying of, of this weapon as part of an ordinary American day. I was not yet used to America's high tolerance of violence. I did not know to what extent the shootin'-tootin' film characters traveling west in well-armed wagon trains were part of the American DNA. Manifest Destiny produced idealists, financiers, and pioneers who settled territories extending to the Pacific. In popular myth-making, indifferent to anachronisms, heroes shoot their way west. Western movies, which still permeate American self-perception, show the gunslinging hero, his straddle-legged, spur-rattling gait a menace. He has come to town to set things right. I dare you, says his very stance. He is on his guard, like the armed Cincinnati policeman. In addition, unfamiliar boots visible under the swigging saloon doors in a dusty town are immediately guarded as worn by the stranger and potential adversary. The phenomenon stranger is a threat, even as it is part of, an, of a patriotic idea. That is so paradoxical, because at the same time, we acknowledge with pride that America is a country of diverse immigrants who all started off as strangers in this land of promise, an American dichotomy we live with. Um, now we, in the meantime, I got married, and we, I was, we, that is, is my husband and I, came to America, he came to America to study at the Hebrew Union College. And at that time, in 1948, we were the only married rabbinic student cover. Jacob and I did not remain the only married student cover. There was an influx of married students a year or two later. The Student Wives Club was formed. We got together to discuss situations we would encounter once our husbands occupied pulpits. How active should a rabbi's wife be in the congregation? At what function was her presence expected? What conduct could be censured as either showing insufficient interest or as meddling? We invited people who could give us advice. With our heightened feminist awareness, these questions now seem uncalled for. We have come a long way. 
Lending her presence to many of our student wives club meeting was Belle Wall, wife of Samuel Wall, a rabbi at Isaac and Wise Temple. His wife, Belle, generously shared with, her, with our group her good common sense acquired during years of experience. She came up with realistic answers to our questions and with seemingly easy solutions to anticipated problems. She assembled a reading list of autobiographies written by wives of Christian clergymen in the absence of comparable books by rabbis' wives. A Protestant minister's wife pleaded in one such book that in situations where relations with congregations had to be handled with circumspection, it would be wise for the minister's wife to pursue her own interests. One luxury her family indulged in was daily fresh towels. Sure enough, she was criticized for having too many towels on her, on her clothesline. This trivial matter impressed me at the time as symptomatic of what a clergy wife's role in those days could involve. She had to be prepared for not only intrusion into her family's private life, particularly into hers, but for judgment being passed on it, including matters which were no one else's affairs. Uh, maybe have number three. Thank you. Oh, I should thank my son for taking that photograph. Uh, now, this photograph uh, I took. And this is, uh, belongs to chapter eight, which is the last chapter. And I promise you, this is the last sample I will read. Um, this is a, um, a station on the Rätsche Bahn. I don't know any of you, if any of you have been to Switzerland. Now, it, I read today that it prides, the Rätsche Bahn prides itself on being the longest privately owned railway. But, and if ever you go, you may want to avoid the main areas which go across the mountains, but take a little side one. Which, which, which is one which I took when I went to Poschiavo, which I describe in my book. And this, this is one of the railway stations. It's genuine. It's not your touristy kind of a place. It's, it, it is what it is. And it's tiny and, and it has uh, goats running around. And, and if in the background there, behind the machinery, you don't see anything, it's because there is a steep drop. That railway is one of the wonders of the world. And, and um, when you go from Kur to Poschiavo, you have to change in Zamedan and Pontresina because the gauge of the railway gets narrower and narrower. So this is a fantastic place that we visited on one of our times out of town. 
But what I want to read to you is a little bit about Jerusalem. They spent a year in Jerusalem. And uh, let's see. Jerusalem Ways, for, on page 490. For getting to know a city, there is nothing better than feeling its pavement under your feet. Jacob and I were walking around Jerusalem and found ourselves on Queen Helena Street. From its steep hill, we looked down on the flat roof of a house below, where a seated woman shelled peas on that glaringly bright day. She was sitting on a roof, and the roof had a mere decoration for a parapet. Jacob concluded that this must be a non-Jewish home. The roof of a Jewish house has to have a parapet high enough and sturdy enough to prevent a person from accidentally falling off the roof. And you can find this in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8. Um, in other words, this is not biblical. This goes back to the Bible. Um, a little more about Jerusalem. At the home of a university professor who had invited us to dinner, something unconnected to the conviviality came about. A large but in no way extravagant drawing of a landscape hung on a wall. A profusion of charcoal and pencil lines on off-white paper conveyed that that, like nothing I had seen before, the essence of the ground in Jerusalem, where it is unpaved, uneven, and rocky, with vegetation struggling to grow. Our host explained that the artist Leopold Krakauer had been primarily an architect. Of course, an architect would have had a sense for the qualities and textures of stone, and that is what he had managed to draw. Jerusalem stone and unglamorous flora would not be called beautiful in the conventional sense, but they tower there, mighty, impressive, and abundant as one approaches the city. You know, when, when you come from Tel Aviv and drive up, there is their looms, Jerusalem, and you can see you can see the stone and the the struggling growth. We had wanted to find a piece of Jerusalem artwork to take home with us. We didn't we did not have in mind anything specific as to form or medium, though not necessarily a view of the Western Wall. Here was a view of Jerusalem reproduced by one with a feel for the place beyond the overt piety. Our host referred me to Grete Krakauer, the artist's widow, who, like her husband, had grown up and studied in Vienna and other schools in Europe before to moving to then Palestine in 1924. I made an appointment to see her. Few of Leo Krakauer's charcoal drawings were left. 
The one we we acquired shows a gnarled tree in the left foreground. The rest of the ochre-colored paper is is filled with both soft and heavy lines that suggest a prevalence of stunted shrubs amid contours of undulating scenery. A jutting boulder next to a rounded hillock with random outcrop and roots competing with rocks. The drawing gives a hint of the tough eternity of Jerusalem's ground. And here I address address myself to people who may be watching on Zoom from Cincinnati. A little footnote, a frame for the picture was made by the Suda Art Store on Vine Street, a Cincinnati establishment, originally owned by one Biddlemeyer. Generations of newly ordained rabbis would hurry there with their, their rabbinical ordination certificates to have them framed. So much for my readings. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. And while I'm really tempted to ask you about the honeymoon that you went on with Jonathan and Leslie, um, which you revealed in the book and I had no idea of, I'm, I will hold back, restrain myself, and instead ask a different a different question, although I want to hear about the wife who oh, was the son you. who took his mother on a honeymoon. <laughs> um, but that may be over drinks later. Uh, and you could hear this in the in the selections that you chose to read. You love language. And your love of words is so clear in your writing. And yet you live and operate among and between different languages. I'm curious in what languages you dream and in what languages you write. Um, I write chiefly in English. Um, my, My German contemporaries with whom I corresponded are no more. And... I used to write continuously. I had a lot of correspondence with friends in Germany, but um, opportunities to speak German are zero. I don't have any. And writing a German letter, I still write a few, not very many, gets slower and slower. I have to look up words, I think in English, yeah. And do you remember when that changed? Because I, I'm thinking about, you know, as I as I read the memoir, the sections where you write about your life in Germany, and I would say the sections where you write about your life in England and early in Cincinnati, read as a German thinking about English context. And then there's a moment in the memoir where I felt as if, and I don't, for those who have read the memoir, I'd love to hear if you, have you had a similar experience? I feel as if the voice changed slightly. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering for you, given that you were married also to a refugee native German speaker, 
and you were living in a community where there were other German Jews with whom you could speak German, at least in those early years. And you had this wide circle of individuals with whom you were writing in German. When did the switch happen? And it's very interesting that you notice that I was quite unaware of that. Um, the uh, I think it probably happened gradually. Um, I think since I've lived in Columbus, my German has really atrophied. In in German, Germany, in in Cincinnati, I had some German friends, but they always spoke English, mm. very broken English sometimes, but it was all in English. I think I do a lot more writing in German mm -hmm. than I do speaking in German, and I think it happened gradually. You know, as pe people pass away, um, I don't speak German anymore. Do you still do translation work? The translation work that you used to do of translating uh, German works into English. No, I, th I think I think even the people who speak German, native German speaker speakers who speak English now, uh, don't no longer translate. Mm -hmm. I do not. I don't think they translate. They just have a very pronounced accent. Mm -hmm. you know? I could ask questions for hours, but I want to be sensitive to the number of people in the room. So maybe we can start with questions. And if there's ever some silence, I've got a list. So the question was, if you could talk a little bit more about your school life in Germany and about the trip to England. The experience leaving. And the experience leaving. So maybe say a few more words about what school was like leaving and then the experience leaving Germany. Leaving Germany. That's very interesting you should be asking that because just a few days ago, I mentioned it to my son, um, I heard somebody say during the Holocaust, that was the time when so many Polish Jews had to leave um, th their dear homeland where they felt so at home. I thought the Holocaust is a very long time ago because I think I th I'm, I'm still very close to it. There's hardly a day that I don't think about it. We were happy to get out of there. I mean, I didn't come out of Poland, I came out of Germany. But I think people who left Poland, thank God that they could leave and go somewhere else. So the perceptions change. And I think a lot has to do with the age at which you leave. I think people in their 60s or 70s who left, left with very different feelings like someone of my generation who left as a schoolgirl and it also it also depends i think when in when during hitler's rise to power you left when you left at the beginning it is probably because you were very well to do and you wanted to save your income and all your goods, goods, and you left very early. 
And I think people like my family, who 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 just could not believe that that somebody like Hitler would ever succeed, we left much too late. But I mean, how people felt about leaving, it, I think it depends how old you were. I think older people may really have felt, oh, what a shame that we are leaving. But they knew they had to leave if they wanted to stay alive. And I think it's probably a mixture of things. I mean, somebody in my generation had no sentimental feelings towards Germany whatsoever at that time. One of the striking things about your memoir was the sort of spirit, the sense of adventure that you had as both a schoolgirl in Germany and then as a student, a schoolgirl in England and then a university student. And um, without being the sort of show off people that I am, I will um, I'll own that identity and quote back to you, one of your own sections where you talk about your optimism and you write about this question. This is page 116. You say much later in life, I realized what a fortune it was to be alive, right? With that realization came a relief, a lightness of heart, a stance proper to a far younger age. And then you talk about how kind of in some ways you're now thinking about kind of going back, right? Where you say something like even now in my nineties, there are moments I am suffused with a gladness that is quite unjustified by reality and that I regard as a catching up with my younger years, which in their setting in history were unthinkably grave. I felt older then than I do now. Um, and to me, that was, I mean, that was just that I copied that and, and put that down um, because I think it does tell us a little bit about your ability to write about your those years as a squirrel girl, but then also getting up on the balcony and looking down on the dance floor and recognizing and thinking about your own past. Mm -hmm. So perhaps say a little bit more about that act of writing this memoir, about what, what that was like to have to go back and forth between the past and now, you know, you're writing this memoir, you're mm -hmm. kind of taking us through that trajectory. I'm not sure that I understand what you mean. So I I'm I noted that in this memoir you are always writing about the optimism that you experienced in England, right? It was you you even just said now that for older people it might have been harder to leave. And then later in the memoir, you comment on how then you were so optimistic. And now sometimes when you look back, you feel like there was sort of that reverse happening. And so I'm curious, as you were writing the memoir, was that a hard thing to do? Like, how did you kind of go back and forth between so many years yes. of, of life? Yes, I, I see what you mean now. Um, thank you for explaining that. It, um, I, th I think that there may, may well be two levels. Um, and one of them, I, and I try to say what I feel now and what I felt at the time. I mean, I'm trying to distinguish. I'm not sure that I always succeeded. I, I think I think you put your finger on something there. 
Right. It, no, I think um, I, I was glad to get out of there. I was glad to get out of there. I think somebody slightly older may have had some different sensations about that. I mean, at this point, I'm just glad I'm here. <laughs> My question is, what prompted your decision to return to Germany? To, we only went, went back to visit. We, we went to many visits. Um, my husband really started that off. Um, through some peculiar reason, <laughs> I, I concentrated in my studies on German language and literature, uh, in spite of many misgivings that I had about Germany, justified misgivings. Um, and we, we had many, we at the University of Cincinnati had many contacts with the Goethe Institute. I don't know whether you're familiar with that. It's a, a cultural organization that encourages cultural exchanges. And my husband, who paid a great deal of attention to the German department at the University of Cincinnati, although, I mean, formally had nothing to do with it. He was married to somebody who taught there, that's all. So he, um, he had, he was into the Goethe Institute and he received invitations from them. And uh, at um, one of these invitations, uh, there was a very attentive listener who worked for a publishing firm, uh, Herder in Freiburg, which is a Catholic publisher. And he made contact with my husband. And my husband and Herder became like a love affair. He, uh, they were so eager to have an articulate Jew who could write books for them, explain Judaism to Germany, where there were no German Jews, where there were no Jews, period, at that time, in the 19, late 60s, early 70s, things have changed a great deal. And, and uh, he saw to it that my husband had a lot of contact I mean, through the Goethe Institute, there were other invitations that came. And in other words, we were invited. Yeah, yeah. Hi, thank you. Um, uh, I was wondering if you uh, wrote the book relatively recently or, or did you write it over many years? Yeah. I wrote it over many years. And I uh, thank you for the, that really quite interesting question. Um, did you... I didn't sit down and write chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. I wrote all over the place over many years. And then it was a question of putting it all together like a jigsaw puzzle and putting it in order. It took me a whole summer just to, just to come up with the way I would be doing it and what I would be putting where. So <laughs> I'm very disorganized. It, 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 I mean, it, it came out looking organized, but uh, it, it, the way it was written was in no way organized. It, a little bit here, a little bit there. 
Did you did you find that your perspective changed over the years and what you wanted to say? Uh, my perspective on what? Uh, on in, Germany, on your life? And, uh, no, I don't think so. Not much. I mean, I'm not aware of it. It may have done, perhaps it should have done. But <laughs> Hi, thanks so much for, for coming and talking to all of us. Um, I was wondering um, how your experiences have shaped your thinking on Zionism and the experiences of Palestinians under Israeli occupation, specifically thinking about your skepticism of collective thinking and your, your own experience of forced migration. I don't think I've given enough thought to that to give you a very reasonable answer. Um, I'm for peace in the world. You mentioned the differences between the different generations and feeling in uh, their feelings about leaving uh, Germany. Uh, someone was curious as if your mother ever shared her experiences of leaving and if those differed from from your experience leaving. Did my mother? No, I don't think so. No, I think she was. Uh, I think she was the one who was so loath to leave because. Um, we had a very nice life in Germany, which she didn't, which she did not want to abandon, because she knew that that wherever we would arrive, we would not have a way to make a living, and that is precisely what happened. My parents had a very, very hard time when we came to England. There, there was. They, they had no career, none, none whatsoever. And for many years, my mother um, was, she was a fabulous cook. And she cooked, she took to cooking professionally. In fact, on one occasion when she lived in London, when um, Eleanor Roosevelt during World War II came to pay a visit to the troop, to the U.S. troops stationed in London, they called my mother to do the cooking. Oh wow! <laughs> so uh, I mean, she was a very superior cook, and I mean, she earned her living as a cook. And my father, who died much too soon, of, of um, he died much too soon. Um, he was a traveling salesman which was nothing like the business that, that uh, the established business that his father had established. So, I mean, there was a very good reason they didn't want to leave because they couldn't make it anywhere else. Now, I, I will, as I say in my book, I was extremely fortunate in all the things that happened to me. I was the right age to leave. Yeah. How do you categorize yourself? Do you refer to yourself as a survivor of the Holocaust, as a refugee, as an expellee, none of the above? Uh, how, how would you, when I go talk to my students on Friday, would, do I tell them that they missed an amazing talk by a survivor, a <laughs> refugee? What, what, how do you think of yourself? Well, I think survivor, I think of a survivor of a concentration camp. So I'm not a survivor. 
I'm a survivor in the sense that I'm here. Mm -hmm. um, a refugee, well, in, I didn't, I, I was not a refugee who came to America. I mean, as the previous questioner inquired, I mean, it's really by coincidence that we are here. Um, we, my late husband and I, um, in Germany, in England, refugee wasn't a big thing. I mean, it may have been for my parents' generation. And as I say in my book, I, uh, I was separated from them as soon as I came to England because they were in London and I went to school, which the day before the war broke out, the schools were evacuated to the country. So I left my parents and I was 14. And um, I, I didn't feel a refugee. I fe felt like a newcomer in England. You know? <laughs> I suppose I would be a refugee, but uh, not in, not in America. Yeah. Um, how I categorize myself, other than that, I really don't know. You have to do the category. <laughs> <laughs> Always making me do the work. <laughs> Any last questions? Then can you tell us about the honeymoon that you went on with your son and his wife? Well, that that was a lot of fun. We, <laughs> we start we the three of us started off in Rome, and after what was it four days or thereabouts, uh, we separated. The married couple uh, took um, rented a car and went down to the Mediterranean, and I took a train and went to Florence. <laughs> Thank you, Robin, and thank you, Elizabeth, for this wonderful evening. Thank you for tuning in to the BPL podcast today. To find out more about the Bexley Public Library, including upcoming events, visit our website, bexleylibrary.org, or the handle at Bexley Library across all social media platforms. Email me with any comments, questions, or suggestions at podcast at bexleylibrary.org. Thank you.